Please turn with me in the written word of God to Acts chapter 20. Through the blessing of the ascended Christ, today is a wonderful day in the life and history of our church. As for the first time, not the first time ever we've had a plurality of elders, but it will be, we'll have a plurality of elders by the end of this day and a plurality of deacons for the first time in our church's history. And these men, their gifts are gifts of the ascended Christ, and we should not take those gifts for granted. And so it seems appropriate that we should mark out the occasion by preaching an ordination sermon, which I'm going to preach from Acts 20, verse 28, which the context is, this was the last time Paul had ever seen, the, he would ever see in this life, the plurality of elders in uh, the, ch- the church in Ephesus, whom he had appointed and whom he had uh, known so super well. And he's giving them the final exhortation. And verse 28 is really the heartbeat, the centerpiece, the keystone of everything he has to say in this wonderful chapter. So you're in Acts chapter 20, verse 28. Therefore take heed to yourselves and to all the flock, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. Let's pray. Father, we ask that the Holy Spirit be poured out through the merits of Jesus Christ, that your Spirit would give utterance to my lips and anoint the ears of the hearers, Lord, that we might receive your word by faith, that we would walk away being obedient to it, and that you would bless these brothers who are about to be added to the officers of our church. Do a great and mighty work among us, we pray, for your glory and for your honor, because that is why we exist. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. In order to understand what's going on in this text and this exhortation that Paul is giving, you have to understand how the apostles obeyed the Great Commission that Jesus gave to us. Of course, you're very familiar with the Great Commission. Jesus, before he ascended, gave a threefold commandment to the apostles and by extension to his entire church. And those three parts of that uh, commandment are make disciples, baptize disciples, and teach disciples. What does that look like in terms of obedience? How do we fulfill that? The short answer is this. We must evangelize the world and we must plant churches in the world. But I want to submit to you that if you examine the book of Acts and if you examine the epistles, what you will find is that there is at least a seven-fold cycle of church planting that takes place. And I want to go through that briefly with you to understand what's happening in our text here. First, Paul and his plural band of traveling companions would enter into a town or region where the gospel had never been proclaimed before. Paul was laser-focused upon going to those who had never heard the gospel where Christ had never been proclaimed, who knew nothing about him, and went to those places to preach the gospel. And they would preach uh, in the the, uh, open air, they would preach in the synagogues, they would preach in temples, they would preach anywhere that they could find a hearing. They would talk one-on-one, they would show hospitality and share the gospel over the dinner table. And of course, they they encountered a lot of resistance because the world hates the gospel, and when you tell them, be at peace with God, be reconciled to God, they don't want peace with this God that they hate. And so they try to silence the messengers. But in the midst of all that pushback that the world gave them, 
The sovereign grace of God opened the hearts of some to heed the things that they were teaching, and they repented of their sins, put their faith in Christ alone, and were saved. And that leads to the second part, what happened when people uh, responded well to the gospel. Well, the second thing is, the ministers would baptize these new believers into the triune name of God. You understand, the apostles never evangelized through an altar call. They never evangelized by having people raise a hand, sign a card, or come and weep at at an anxious bench. They called them to repent of their sins, put their faith in Jesus Christ, and the way in which you confess your faith that Jesus is Lord is through the waters of baptism. And the third thing then is the missionaries would organize these newly baptized believers into a local church. And it was in the context of the local church that they taught those who had passed through the the narrow gate of conversion how to walk upon the difficult path of discipleship because great commission obedience doesn't end with evangelism. That's just where it begins. But then you must teach and instruct those who have been saved how it is that they follow Jesus by obeying His commandments. So it was in the context of the local church that the disciples continued in the apostles' doctrine, in the fellowship, in the breaking of bread, that is, the Lord's Supper, and in the prayers. We also know they continued in the singing of God's praises with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. It was within the church that they used the public means of grace diligently to grow in grace and in sanctification. And that leads us to the fourth part. Fourth, Paul and his team would then stay a few weeks, a few months, sometimes a few years, And then they moved on to the next unreached people group or the next unreached region, leaving behind them an apostolic delegate such as Timothy or Titus who would serve as something of an interim pastor inside the local church. He left Timothy in Ephesus. He left Titus on the island of Crete. And basically, these men continued the work that had been begun by teaching and preaching, uh, evangelizing, but also growing up the disciples, and they had a specific task given to them. As they were there, and as God raised up men who were growing in grace, growing in their spiritual maturity, and demonstrating some aptitude for leadership, they were instructed to train them for the ministry just as Paul had trained them. And so they trained faithful men in order to prepare them to be officers in the church. Which leads to the fifth thing. As God's calling upon particular men to be elders or deacons became evident, the missionaries and the congregation would rigorously examine them in accordance with the qualifications set forth in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and Titus chapter 1 to see if indeed God had called them. And they were looking for three things in particular. The desire for the work. Now, did you hear what I said? The desire for the work, not the desire for the title. The desire for the work. Was there evidence they desired to do these things that God calls men to do if they're going to be elders or deacons? Secondly, they were to examine them for the graces of their character. That is, did they have the spiritual maturity? And brothers and sisters, let me iterate to you something very important. The Holy Spirit spends a lot more time talking about a man's graces than it does even his gifts. As important as gifts are, and they are important, men lead by example. And so it's the gifts or it's the graces that are given most emphasis. What kind of man is he in his home? 
What kind of man is he in the workplace? What kind of man is he in the church? What kind of man is he out and about in the world? It's the graces. But then the gifts are also necessary. Specific gifts to fulfill the specific office. And once they were convinced that indeed they've passed our examinations, we believe they are called by God, then what did they do? They laid hands upon them, installing them into the gospel ministry. This laying on of hands seems to be referring to an imputation of authority, a delegation of authority to exercise the office to which they had been called. And so they would do this in an official way. Sixth, the apostolic delegates would commend the elders in the congregation to the grace of God and rejoin Paul, where the process began once again. In other words, the work begun by Paul, continued by his apostolic delegates, now was continued by the indigenous homegrown elders and deacons within that local church who continued the care of souls uh, in their wake. But as they had trained these men, they also instilled in them the DNA of multiplying and and reproducing themselves, as it were, which leads to the seventh thing. Seventh, the churches themselves sent elder-qualified men to plant more churches in their region and beyond. That is, as God built up a base of qualified leadership within the local church and continued to add men to that group, the time would come when they would send men out two by two into other regions to start the process all over again. And we find this particularly in Ephesus, which is where Timothy was, and where Paul is in our text in Acts chapter 20, that by the time the New Testament ends, there are eight churches planted in the, in the region of Asia Minor who were not there when the New Testament began. Specifically, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamos, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea, and Colossae. But what's fascinating is the evidence as you compare Scripture with Scripture is that Paul himself did not plant those other churches. The church in Ephesus planted those other churches. Paul writes to Colossae and says, I've never seen your face. I've heard of your faith in Christ Jesus. I've heard about it from the Ephesian church because the Ephesian church planted you. In other words, every church had that vision inside of themselves. Now you understand what I've just given you. It's our vision at Berean Baptist Church. It's what we are seeking to do today as we lay hands upon men and then long to continue teaching men and training men in our church as the Lord raises them up so that we can then send them out to plant churches domestically and internationally. To put it another way, obeying the Great Commission not only involves evangelism, it involves church planting and planting churches that are self-governing, self-supporting, and self-propagating. That's what we see in the New Testament. And understanding this helps us to understand what's going on in Titus chapter 1, verse 5. Remember what Paul says there? He tells Titus, For this reason I left you in Crete, that you might set in order the things that are lacking. Something is lacking in the churches. What was it? And appoint elders, plural, in every city. There's a church in each city. You need to appoint elders for them because something is lacking. This brings us to what we're here for today. We are able today, by the mercies of God, to set in order some things that have been lacking in our church. Now, let me be very clear before we jump into our text that if a church only has one solitary pastor, if God has not blessed them yet with a plurality of elders and deacons, 
that does not make them any less of a church. As a matter of fact, a pastor who has no fellow elders actually has the greatest pastor anybody could ever ask for serving alongside of him. Because the chief shepherd and overseer of the church is whom? Jesus Christ. I have had different years where I have not had a fellow elder, but I have had a fellow elder. I've had the chief shepherd, Jesus Christ, with me this entire time. And so if you're ever in a church context where there is not a plurality of elders, brothers and sisters, let me exhort you, please do not put pressure upon your pastor to hurry up and lay hands on elders. That is grossly unfair to him. You're putting pressure on him that is not right. And let me tell you right now, let me warn you, if you lay hands on men hastily, you will repent in leisure. Do not uh, persuade or tempt your pastor to disobey God's commandment when he says, do not lay hands on any man hastily. It takes a lot of time to test men, to train men, to examine men, and to set them forth as candidates for elderships and deacons. But that being said, while a church is still a church, even if it doesn't have a plurality of elders and deacons, the reality is something is lacking. There is something that needs to be filled in. There needs to be the deliberate goal of seeing God raise up such men because it brings greater blessing to the church. So with that in view, I'm going to expound four things from Acts chapter 20, verse 28, that I see in our text. This is my go-to text for my own ministry. And so I want to expound those things to you and give some exhortations at the end to both our officers and then to our members as well. Here's the four things I see in this text. Number one, shepherds need shepherds. Secondly, sheep need shepherds. Third, the great shepherd calls shepherds. And fourth, the great shepherd values sheep. So first of all, shepherds need shepherds. The historical context of Acts 20 is that Paul's an old man. The Spirit has told him through a group of prophets that when you get to Jerusalem, he's on his way by sea to Jerusalem, when you get there, you're going to be arrested, you're going to be in prison. And the brothers have tried to persuade him. Please, Paul, don't go to Jerusalem. But he's insistent, he's adamant that he's going to go there. He says, I want to fulfill my course with joy. And you know the story, if you've read the rest of Acts, that the Lord would use him then to preach the gospel to kings and to civil magistrates. But he's on the way there, and on his journey, he passes by the city of Ephesus. He was close to uh, these brothers in that church. If you look at the book of Acts, Paul planted the church at Ephesus during his third missionary journey. And he spent more time in the city of Ephesus than he did in any other place in all of his ministry. He had personally mentored and trained these elders. He had installed them. He had grown close to them as a band of brothers. And he knows this is the last time in this present age he's ever going to get to see them or they to see him. So when he docks at Miletus in port, he calls for them and they come by land and come and meet him so that he can give them a final exhortation. I wish we had the time to go through everything he has to say to him because it's rich. It's so rich. But verse 28 is really a summation of everything he has to say there. But the very first thing he says to them in verse 28 is, elders, look after one another. Be pastors 
to your fellow pastors. Look at it. Take heed to yourselves and to all the flock. The the second part there is the laymen of the church, the members of the church. First of all, though, look after one another. Do not only shepherd the souls of the laymen in your congregation, you must also shepherd the souls of your fellow elders. Churches certainly need godly pastors. But has it ever occurred to you that pastors also need pastors? Very desperately, we do. The Holy Spirit, as as I believe, placed me as an overseer over your souls at this church. In just a few moments, he's going to install a second man, Matt Spears, as an overseer over your souls. But do you realize not only is he going to be your pastor, Matt's about to come my pastor, even as I am his pastor, and we are going to oversee this church together in an atmosphere of mutual rule and mutual submission to one another under the headship of Jesus Christ, who is the sole head of our church. That is our goal. That is what we're doing, and we need one another. Pastors, wherever they are, are on the front lines of kingdom advance. And you know, that may sound exciting, and sometimes it is. But the reality is, let's also understand something. Entering into the gospel ministry is warfare. It is warfare. And to be on the front lines of kingdom advance also means that you're in the most vulnerable place to be attacked. You're kind of like Uriah the Hittite. He was placed right underneath the, the walls of the, of the city they were trying to overtake, and they were mo- he was most exposed to the archers who were standing on the ramparts. That's how being in the ministry often is. And to have brothers in the foxhole with you is a huge blessing, if they're qualified. If they're not qualified, it's, it's a huge curse. But to have qualified men in the trenches with you is a huge blessing. Let me mention six blessings really, really quickly. I'm going to pitch my tent on the last two for a little bit, but I'm going to give you the first four real quick. First of all, a plurality of elders can bear one another's burdens in a way that the layman of the church cannot always do, for the layman have no personal experience serving in the pastorate. That's not meant as a slam to anyone here in any way, shape, or form, but it's, it's like this. I can spend hours as a civilian trying to imagine what it must be like as a U.S. Marine to fight the Al-Qaeda. I can imagine it all day long, but until you're actually a Marine and until you're making your way through the war-torn streets, gun in hand, and the bullets are flying over your head and you're having to avoid stepping on the landmines, you can't really know what it's like to be there. Even so, the ministry is like that. The pastorate, uh, you can have the theory of it, but it's another thing to live the life. Six months after uh, Nathan White had become a pastor, uh, in Lookout Mountain, Tennessee. I had mentored him many, many years ago, and I, he invited me to come up and preach, and I arrived on a Saturday afternoon. I sat in his study, and I looked at him, and I said, so, is the ministry what you were expecting? And he laughed, a very full laugh, and he said, that is a very good question. It's good you're here. We're having some trouble. Can I talk to you about it? <laughs> And, uh, and I said, yes, and we had a, a wonderful time of just sharing and bearing each other's burdens there. But fellow brothers in the trenches can help their fellow pastors in so many ways when they're going through hardship. I thank God for our association of churches and brothers I can reach out to and seek their counsel with, but I'm thankful now to have someone in-house as a fellow pastor as well. Secondly, the elders can encourage one another when they grow weary in the fight. 
we can take on some of the workload so that hopefully we can keep each other from getting burned out uh, as we share that workload. Third, there's great wisdom in having a multitude of counselors when you're making decisions within the church, and a plurality of qualified elders provides that. Without counsel, plans go astray. In the multitude of counselors, Proverbs says, there is surety, and it gives that. Um, Fourth, being able to stand in solidarity with one another when you're navigating difficult seasons in the church's life, such as emotionally taxing counseling situations or particularly hard discipline cases, is uh, absolutely huge. Fifth, a plurality of elders can watch each other's backs and help to guard the good reputation of their fellow elders. I'm going to pitch a tent on here for just a minute. In 1 Timothy 5, Paul exhorts Timothy, do not receive an accusation against your fellow elders unless it comes from two or three witnesses. In other words, it's a serious thing to bring a charge against an officer the Holy Spirit has placed inside the local church. And the clear implication of Paul's words is, Timothy, have your fellow officers' backs. Be zealous to guard their good name and their good reputation from those who would attack it. It's similar to what uh, is described as a righteous man in Psalm 15. Psalm 15 verse 3 says that the righteous man does not backbite with his tongue, nor does evil to his neighbor, listen to what it says next, nor does he take up a reproach against his friend. He's got his friend's backs. Brothers and sisters, I want you to understand something. When I lay hands on these men, I have got their backs and they've got mine. If you come to me claiming that one of these brothers has sinned against you or he's offended you because he looked at you cross-eyed or something, you know already what I'm going to say to you. Brother, have you gone to him privately? Sister, have you gone to him privately? You need to go to him privately. Don't talk to anyone else about this. Please don't talk to me about it anymore. Your issues with him, go talk to him. In fact, I'll come back in a week or two and ask you, have you gone to him yet? But deal with him privately. And if he doesn't listen, and the issue is serious enough, enlist the help of one or two mature brothers or sisters in the Lord in this church, then go to him again. And if he doesn't listen then, then you with the witnesses come to me, and only then will I hear this or receive this from you. But otherwise, don't come to me. I would hope we would all have that attitude towards one another as members of the church, all the more so with our officers as well. You know, if these men sin against you or if I sin against you, I know I speak for them when I say, we want you, please, to come to us. Please give us the opportunity to make it right. Give us the opportunity to seek your forgiveness. Or perhaps even maybe you misunderstood something we said. Give us the opportunity and love to clarify that, even as we want to give you that opportunity. Come straight to us. In other words, treat us like brothers because that's what we are. Matthew 18, 15 applies to us just as much as it does the congregation. That we are to come to one another privately, seeking to win one another. And you know what? We can sin against you because we are sinners. And getting hands laid upon us doesn't change that. I wish it did, but it doesn't. And so come to us and love us enough to give us 
that opportunity to make things right. But just understand, and I don't mean this to sound threatening. Brothers and sisters, I've got these men's backs. If I were ever to discover, and I'm not suggesting any of you would do this, but I've been in the ministry a while. I know how this works. If you come trying to undermine their godly reputation among this congregation, or you're trying to set the officers against one another by flattering one while criticizing another, believe me, if I discover that, it's not going to be good. It's not going to be good. I tell you that apart from these men's wives, there is no one who is more zealous for their good names than me. I've got their backs. Okay? Understand that. And they have told me they've got mine as well. And that's how it ought to be. Sixth thing. And I think this is the primary focus of Acts 20.28. Pastors need the mutual accountability of other pastors. Again, when you get hands laid upon you, two weeks ago I told you we are prone to drift, right? I was preaching that and telling you that we need to recognize it's entirely possible for us to apostatize. That the, the tendency of men and of institutions is to drift. And I wish that once you had hands laid upon you, that was no longer the case, that I didn't have a heart prone to wonder anymore, but I still have a heart prone to wonder. I was praying with Matt yesterday afternoon for our service today, and, and, I, and in my prayer I said, Lord, For 21 years, your lampstand has been here. How often I have grieved you. How often my sin has given you cause to remove that lampstand. But you in grace and in mercy have not done so. We are prone to wonder and we need the accountability of one another to not not drift theologically, on the one hand, but also not to drift morally, not to get off the, the, the difficult path of discipleship by stepping to the right or to the left. Everyone needs that. I praise God that for 21 years of ministry thus far, I have had, I've been surrounded by accountability. It's not safe for my soul to not have it. It's not safe for the souls entrusted to my care for me not to have it. And I thank God that Matt and I have already had begun that accountability with one another many, many months ago, many years ago, really, in so many ways. It's safe for him and it's safe for me. We need it. I, if you read Dr. Renahan's uh, first book on Baptist Symbolics, which he's talking about the first London Baptist Confession of Faith, which was published in 1644 in a revised edition, 1646, and then a second revision, 1651. But he talks about two pastors who signed the first two editions, one in 1644 and 1646. Samuel Richardson and Paul Hobson were their names. Both men would say they believe the same theology we believe in this church. Because the substance of theology for the first London Confession and the second are the same. Very quickly after Samuel Richardson had signed that he believed our theology, he began to drift into heterodoxy. He embraced and taught something called eternal justification. And then by the end of his life, he was denying the doctrine of hell and of eternal punishment. A man who signed our first confession. The other man, Paul Hobson, was also a spiritual leader among many Baptist churches, but in 1660, he had to be placed under church discipline because he had been engaged in sexual morality not with one, but two women. So there are two men who signed our confession or the substance of our confession, and yet one drifted theologically and the other drifted morally. Elders have got to watch after elders to protect ourselves to make sure we walk 
in the way that God has called us to. I sometimes wonder if Jesus deliberately chose Judas Iscariot to be one of the apostles so that in every age we would be reminded if an apostle can apostatize, why do you think you're immune? To warn us. So elders need elders. Shepherds need shepherds. Let's move on, though. It's not just shepherds that need shepherds. Sheep need shepherds. Look again at the text. Therefore, take heed to yourselves and to whom? To all the flock, that is, the congregation. I want to tie in our deacons into all this. God has made every person, every man, woman, boy, or girl, basically of two parts. He's given you an immaterial soul that can never die, and He's also given you a material body that has needs. You need finances, you need food, you need shelter, nourishment, all those things. All right, if God has made men into two parts, why has God given the church two offices? It's to minister to the whole man. Elders, shepherd your souls. Deacons look after the many physical and financial needs of the church to enable the elders to fulfill their role. All right, so pastors in the Bible are called pastors, shepherds, elders, overseers. Those aren't four different offices. Those are the same office. All those things. When I lay hands on Matt today, he's going to become a pastor, a shepherd, an overseer, an elder. All those things together. The word pastor, does anyone know what it means? Literally means shepherd. Shepherd the flock of God. Notice verse 28. We're told, the elders are told by Paul, shepherd the church of God, which he's purchased with his own blood. We have a responsibility, Matt and I do, to oversee this congregation, to minister to your souls, to lead you in the pathway of righteousness. Uh, we all know the story of John 21. John 21 is when Jesus restored Peter after he had denied three times that he knew him. You remember what happened? He sat him down and said, Peter, do you love me? Three different times he asked him that question, giving him three times to reaffirm what he had previously denied. And you remember the story that Peter said, yes, Lord, I love you. Well, Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, I love you. Third time he asked him, Peter, do you love me? And he's troubled in heart. His conscience is hurting inside. And he says, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. You know the story, but have you ever noticed how Jesus responds to Peter every time he affirms his love? What's the very first thing he says? Yes, Lord, I love you. Feed my lambs. Second affirmation, tend my sheep. Third affirmation, feed my sheep. In other words, Peter, if you love me, the proof is in the pudding. Show your love for me by the love you have for my people that I've bought with my blood. Tend them, protect them, feed them. Matt, how are you and I to shepherd the souls entrusted to our care? It's just five, re- five ways, quickly. First, by doing the work of an evangelist. First, first, or 2 Timothy 4. Do the work of an evangelist. Have you noticed that Matt can't give a public scripture reading or preach without calling the unconverted to Christ? My brother, continue that. Continue that. Don't stop. If anything, increase. Love that very fact because, frankly, hell is hot and time is short. 
And we cannot presume that everyone who's hearing us truly knows the Lord. And so keep on calling sinners to Christ because that's our task. To you is going to be committed just as has been committed to me, the word of reconciliation, the ministry of reconciliation. And we need to continue doing the work of an evangelist by the way we guard the membership of our church so that we seek as much as we can know to have a regenerate church membership. And the way we fence baptism and the Lord's Supper and the way we administer discipline and the way that we do evangelism in our homes to our own children and as we have opportunity to make Christ known outside. So in a peculiar manner, all Christians are called in one sense to be fishers of men. But Matt, you and I, in a very peculiar manner, are called to cast the net of the gospel into the sea of humanity that we might catch some souls for the glory of God. Second, by feeding the sheep. It's not our exclusive responsibility, but you know what the elder's responsibility is more than anything else? It's to preach the word. What was the very final thing that Paul exhorted Timothy to do in 2 Timothy chapter 4? Whatever else you do, Timothy, I charge you before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, preach the word. Preach it in season and preach it out of season. Preach it when it's popular. Preach it when it's not popular. Preach it when men receive sound doctrine. Preach it when they don't. But keep on preaching the Word. It's the primary means we have for the conversion of sinners, for the sanctification of God's people, and it's the primary way we protect the church in so many ways. By setting forth the sound exposition of Scripture. And the thing is, Matt, you and I are called to be heralds of the Word, not editors-in-chief. And that requires us to be diligent, to rightly divide the word of truth, to study hard, to continually grow in our biblical and theological knowledge and literacy so that we can preach the word, the whole counsel of God's word. Paul literally said to the Ephesian elders, my hands are innocent of the blood of all men because I have not shunned to declare the whole counsel of God. There was no verse I was ashamed of. There was no, no doctrine that made me blush. I preached the whole counsel of God to you, and that should be our task as well. We are heralds of our King's message. Jesse and Jacob, you have a vital role to play in this as well. Yes, Jesse is a gifted brother, and Jacob aspires to be a gifted brother. Both men have aspirations to be elders someday, God willing. But that being said, even if you never become elders, do you realize that the deacons have a massive role to play in the Word of God being preached faithfully here? As a matter of fact, how were the first deacons ever appointed? Acts chapter 6. There was a disruption in the distribution of food to the widows. And they came to the apostles with this, the shepherds of the church, and they said, it's not expedient for us to leave the ministry of the Word to attend to this thing. As important as this is, as disruptive to the unity of the church as this can be, we need to appoint qualified men to whom we can delegate this so they can attend to the benevolence issues of the church. They can take care of the physical and financial needs of the church so that we, in turn, can give ourselves fully to prayer and the Word of God. In other words, they facilitated, they enabled the elders to give themselves fully to the calling God had given them to. And have you ever noticed what the result was after they laid hands on the first seven deacons? Acts chapter 6, verse 7 says, Then the Word of God spread... And the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great number, a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. The word of God spread because the deacons did their job well, and when the deacons did their job well, that enabled the elders to do their job well. Even so, it should be in our church. 
My fellow officers, there is currently a famine in the land. Not a famine of bread or of water, but of hearing the word of the Lord. May such a famine never come to this church on our watch. Because we're fixed upon our purpose and keeping the first things first. Third, protecting the sheep. Protecting the sheep. I am convinced that for men who are called to the ministry, there's two great burdens upon their hearts. One is to feed the sheep, but I think equally uh, driving, a driving force in my heart, at least I can say it's true, is to protect the flock. The congregation has to be protected. Our confession says in chapter 26, paragraph 2, that professing Christians are those who profess to know Christ and they haven't undermined the foundation of their profession by embracing heretical departures from the faith, nor by doing anything in their conduct that says, you know, while I profess to know God and works, I deny Him. And our task is to guard the purity of the theology in this church that is believed by our people, that's taught by our people, that's embraced by our people, to uh, teach them in such a way so they're not driven to and fro by every wind of doctrine, but come to a kind of maturity. We're to guard the purity of our worship so that no strange fire is being offered to the Lord. And we must protect the moral purity of the church by continually admonishing God's people to pursue holiness in the fear of the Lord and to forsake their sins. And sometimes as pastors, that requires us to leave the 99 sheep so we can get the one, go after the one sheep who's running astray. And so we have that so important that we do, that we get, be committed to protecting God's people. And this idea of protecting the flock seems to be looming large in Acts 20, 28. Why does Paul admonish the elders to take heed to yourselves and to all the flock? Look at verses 29 and 30 and you find out why. For I know this that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. How terrifying is the next phrase? Also from among yourselves, men will rise up, speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after themselves. Notice what he's saying. Men will come in from outside the church. They look so good. They look so kind and nice and like good Christian people. And yet inside they're ravenous wolves. Satan's always trying to penetrate inside the church, but it's not just only from without. It's they're going to rise up from within, from within the membership. And there's an implication here, even from within the eldership, even from among yourselves, men are going to rise up, not sparing the flock. I, I said earlier, it's really wonderful when elders have other men in the foxhole with them. It's a blessing so long as you're all shooting at the same enemy. But the moment those officers turn their guns on each other and start shooting, it suddenly becomes a great curse. And it happens. It happens. You know the thing I find most terrifying about Paul's words here? He doesn't say it might happen. It could happen. Maybe this will happen in your church. He's prophesying it will happen. It's not a question of if. It's just a question of when. And that's why he says in verse 31, Therefore watch and remember that for three years I did not cease to warn everyone night and day with tears. I pleaded with you, this is coming. The devil doesn't sleep. Keep your eyes open. Jude talks about them this way. He talks about them as men who creep in unawares. 
They're creeps. They creep in unawares. It's, it's like taking your family on a warm summer day on a picnic. And you get your bathing suits on and you, and you get into the lake and it's so warm and comfortable and you're having a wonderful time. And unbeknownst to you, a man-eating crocodile slips into the water on the other side of the lake and he slips in so subtly that he doesn't even make a ripple. And he's swimming towards you under the water and you don't even know he's there. And you don't know he's there until suddenly he latches on, pulls you under, and puts you in the death roll. That's how men creep in. And in our history of 21 years, we've seen all of it. Don't think it can happen, because it can. And that's why I pray on an almost daily basis, Father, please protect us from divisive men and women who come in from without, Protect us from rising up within. Guard the unity of our officers as only you can, because the raw tender of disunity is in every one of our hearts. Lord, do this. And very often I pray the words of Psalm 127.1, unless the Lord guards the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. Lord, you've got to do this. If you don't do it, it's not going to happen. You've got to build your church. We're going to labor, but if you don't build it, it's not going to happen. So I encourage you, Matt, that's why you and I have to be ever vigilant. That's why we've got to keep short accounts in our relationship, and that's true of all of our officers. Guard the unity between us. And if we sin against each other or get, you know, rub each other the wrong way, we need, to make it, we need to keep short accounts. So vital, because if there's disunity in the officers, that will translate into disunity in the church itself. So be on our guard. Fourth thing, equip the sheep. Equip the sheep. It's on the front of your bulletins, Ephesians 4, 11 to 12, that that teachers and pastors are given as gifts of the ascended Christ. But why are we given? We're given to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. That is, every, the, the, the ministry isn't just about the pastors doing things or the deacons doing things. It's about the layman also doing things. Uh, in Ephesians 4.16, we, we grow in grace by what every joint supplies according to the effective working by which every part does its share. So we have to instruct the church how to do that. We have to say, how do you show hospitality to one another? How do you meet urgent needs? How do you bear one another's burdens? Through the preaching and teaching ministries, we teach them how to minister to one another and by our own example as well. Uh, We must equip children how to be children and what their responsibilities are to their parents, young people and singles and married couples, how to walk in obedience in their various callings to the Lord. We must equip engaged couples to prepare them for the good work of marriage. I've had the privilege of doing that over the years with many, many couples. And Matt, I can't wait to see you having that opportunity as well. God has given you a wonderful marriage, made you a faithful father. You have some wisdom by God's grace to impart to couples in the future. And they can look and say, I'm going to tell you this. I look at you men. I say, if that's what marriage is, I want it. I want it. Because you have set an example for us. And to set that example to others is so huge. And I thank God for every one of you. And Matt, you know the exhortation of 2 Timothy 2 too. It's not just equipping the saints, but as God raises up men who, who show some aptitude to be leaders in the future. I can personalize this to you and say it. Matt, the things that you've heard from me, I mean, many witnesses... Commit those to faithful men. 
who'll be able to teach others also. In other words, I want to continue teaching in our, in our Faithful Men's School pastoral training, but as you continue to gain tenure in the ministry, I want you to assist me in that. I want you to help me with that. I know I'm the vocational pastor, so I'll, I'll try to do the most of it, right? But I want you to come in and help with that. And then, God willing, as Jacob and Jesse, if you become elders someday to be able to do that yourself, if we send some of you men out to plant churches, you're going to have that responsibility yourselves to go and train future leaders for the glory of God and for the advancement of His kingdom. I hope if the Lord tarries and there's still a Brigham Baptist church 200 years from now, there'll be a group of faithful men who can look back and say, we've received the baton of the gospel of these last two centuries. We're still standing on the same Bible and we're still standing on the same confession that was given to us and bequeathed to us so many centuries ago. And there could be other people in other lands and churches burning in other places, burning as lampstands, not burning down, (laughs) for the glory of God that are also proclaiming the same thing and seeing the same pattern. That's what we desire. Fifth, how do we shepherd the flock? By interceding for the sheep. Remember what the apostles said when they appointed deacons? They didn't just say, we're going to give ourselves to the ministry of the Word. They said, we're going to give ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the Word. Massive part of how we shepherd the sheep is by interceding for them. Regularly, fervently. Bringing them before God by name. Matt and I have been talking in recent days, and he's told me, he says, the thing that keeps coming to his mind is, who is sufficient for these things? And I feel the same way. Just over 21 years ago, my mom said to me right before we had our first service, says, are you ready for this? Are you ready to be a pastor? You know what I said? Absolutely not. And 21 years later, I still feel the same way. It's a rhetorical question. No man is sufficient for these things. No man is. Our sufficiency, though, is in God. And so we must abide in Him. Because the reality is when you feel insufficient, there's a reason you feel insufficient, and it's because you are. And that can either drive you to despair and say, let me just give up. Or it can drive you to your knees and say, Lord, I'm insufficient. You must carry the day. And if you let it drive you to your knees, then it's a place of strength. You can say so much under this heading. Let's move on. Shepherds need shepherds. Sheep need shepherds. In the third place, the great shepherd calls shepherds. Do you notice it in Acts 20, 28? Therefore, take heed to yourselves and all the flock, among which Paul made you overseers. Is that what it says? Among which the church made you overseers. Among which the Bible college and seminary made you overseers. The faithful school, the faithful men's school of pastoral training, that made you overseers. Those things are means God uses to equip men for the ministry, but they cannot make a man a minister. Among whom the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Brothers, I have trained you as well as I know how, as diligently as I know how. I've sought to obey God's command in examining you to the nth degree. I, if there's another question I'm supposed to ask you, I haven't figured out what it is. <laughs> this, for Matt's case, once I was convinced, three men from an ordination council, pastors of sister churches, had to be convinced, and they were. And then this church had six weeks to meditate and pray and think about it. Two weeks ago, we took the vote. The only tension in the room was the men competing to see who could second the motions. And then when I said, 
Are there any eyes? The eyes sounded a little bit more like a Fourth of July celebration than a church business meeting. Because obviously you've perceived the grace of God in these men. But here's the thing. All we can do is examine them to see if the marks of the call of God are upon them, but their calling is not from men, it's from God. Remember Acts 13, which is the place where the first two cross-cultural missionaries were sent out. Remember what happened? They're in the church of Antioch ministering. The Bible says, As they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Spirit said, Now separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which... I have called them. Then having fasted and prayed and laying hands on them, they, that is the church, sent them away. So, being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. Our job is to discern the call, but the call is from God. Matt, you're called to be an overseer, not by me, but by the Holy Spirit. Jesse, Jacob, you guys are, the church has said, yes, we agree. These men should be deacons. But it's not the church that makes you deacons. It's the Holy Spirit who's made you deacons. And we will therefore give an account to the one who called us. That leads us to the fourth and final thing, and then two exhortations. Shepherds need shepherds. Sheep need shepherds. The great shepherd calls shepherds. In the fourth place, the great shepherd values sheep. It's almost haunting to me to read the end of verse 28. Shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. It seems to me there's a solemnity there. There's a warning. Remember who it is you're overseeing. This is my bride. This is my people my son shed his blood for. They're valuable to me. I'm betrothed to my bride. I've given you the the opportunity to minister to my bride, to take care of my bride, but I'm coming again someday. How horrible to be a pastor and then stand before the judgment seat of Jesus and He looks at you and say, why did you try to seduce my bride by making her disloyal to me? Or why did you try to poison her with heresy and false teaching? Someone tried to poison my bride. If someone tried to seduce my bride, my wrath, well, let's just say this. God better have mercy on their soul because I doubt I will. Jesus notices when people mess with his bride. Spurgeon once said that if Jesus is the king of kings, then the church must be the queen of queens. Brothers, we've got to treat the church as the queen that she is if we're going to honor the king. So take care. Two exhortations, and then we're going to lay hands on these brothers. First of all, to my fellow officers. Brothers, the most important thing I think I can say to you is remember the divine order of your callings. Your calling's being recognized today, but it's not the only calling upon your life. You've heard me teach you this so many times. I'm going to say it again, though. And let's look after one another's souls to make sure that we are keeping these things in priority because there's an order to our callings. And there's a priority to them because of their order. Matt, Jacob, and Jesse, your first calling is not to be an elder and deacons. Your first calling is to be children of God 
who are pleasing to Him. The day may come when you're not an elder or deacon, but the priorities of your first calling will not change whatsoever, whether you're in office or not. It's wonderful. I am so excited. I can't wait to lay hands on you. And I promise you, I'm probably just going to fall apart emotionally. I'm just going to warn you right now. I'm going to be a slubbering mess, <laughs> blubbering mess as I lay hands on you because I'm so excited. But as excited as I am, never, ever lose the wonder of the fact that your names have been written in the Lamb's Book of Life from before the foundation of the world. That your names are written in the hands and feet of Jesus Christ, and that is far more important than the fact that you're elders and deacons. And that doesn't change whether you're an officer or not. And that's true for every layman here who knows the Lord. For all of us, that is the most glorious thing of all. So as much as, as exciting as it is what God's going to do through you, never forget what He's done for you. Secondly, Matt, your second calling is to be Stephanie's husband. Jesse, your second calling is to be Avery's husband. Jacob, your second calling is to be Kelsey's husband. My second calling is to be Angela's husband. The church is the bride of Christ, and we must love the Lord more than we love our ministry, or more than we, we love the Lord more than we love our wives and children. But we also must love our wives more than we love our ministry. Because the church is the bride of Christ, she's not your bride. My bride's name is Angela. And the reality is, if you lose the hearts of your wives and your children, you've lost your ministry anyway. So remember your calling. She comes before the church. Third thing. Matt, your third calling is to be the father of Hannah, Kate, Henry, Jane, and Elizabeth. Jacob, your third calling is to be the father of Abigail and Elizabeth. Jesse, your third calling is to be Florence and Susanna's daddy. My third calling is to be the father of Sam, Luke, Grace, Jack, Malachi, and Margaret. After our vote two weeks ago, I asked one of Matt's children what they thought about their daddy becoming a, becoming a pastor. She looked at me and said, he's still just my daddy. That is exactly the right answer. It's exactly the right answer. Your fourth calling, brothers, is to be the breadwinner of your home. You have to provide for them. You have to excel in your workplace because you have a vocation. You are meant to be a breadwinner for your family, and you've got to take care of that. And so be vigilant in that. In my situation, I have the same calling. Just so happens my calling to be a pastor and my calling to earn my, my bread comes from the same thing. It's one and the same calling for me. But it's still the same thing. I still have to provide for and manage my finances well to take care of my family. But fifth, brothers, you're called by God to serve as officers in His church. So labor to please Him who enlisted you as a soldier. Seek to do well. And I exhort you with the words of 1 Timothy 4, verse 16. Take heed to yourself and to the doctrine. Continue in them. For in doing this, you will save both yourself and those who hear you. My friends, I'm looking forward to working in harness with you. Members of Berean Baptist Church, I have exhortations for you. It's, there's one central one with three small ones. Receive your officers as the gifts of the ascended Christ. Receive your officers as gifts of the ascended Christ. 
After I lay hands on these men, you know, Matt, Jacob, and Jesse, they're all going to be the same men you knew before, but there is a reality. The dynamics of your relationship with them is going to change a bit because they're officers in the church. So in the case of Matt, Matt's about to be placed in authority over you as a shepherd of your souls. And so the commandment given by the Holy Spirit in Hebrews 13, verse 17, applies to him. Obey those who rule over you and be submissive, for they watch out for your souls as those who must give an account. Let them do so with joy and not with grief, for that would be unprofitable for you. The head of the church, not Jerry Slate, the head of the church commands you to submit to the authority of Pastor Matt Spears in the same way you submit to my authority as your pastor, because we're about to share equal authority with one another. That means you've got to respect Pastor Matt in the way you speak to him and in the way you speak about him. And it means this, ready for this? You have to obey him. You've got to submit to his counsel. You've got to listen to him. You need to make sure you're being diligent to be at our stated meetings so that you can be under his preaching and teaching ministry. And certainly, we always need to examine everything we're hearing to see if the Scriptures really bear witness to what's being said, because our interpretation and our preaching, unfortunately, are not infallible. The Word of God itself is. Matt and I, neither one wants you to be blindly obedient to any man. But that being said, that caveat notwithstanding, you must receive the preached Word by faith, and you must be resolved to be a doer, not a, just a mere hearer of it. Anything less is disobedience to the head of the church himself. And so, when the author of Hebrews says, watch out for, they watch out for your souls as those who must give an account, I believe what he's saying is, take some pity on your elders. Because let me ask you a question. When Jesus comes back and we stand before his judgment seat, who of us in this room is going to have the strictest judgment of all? It's Pastor Matt. It's me. And that changes your decision-making paradigm. The way you think about things. Because you're constantly aware of the fact, I am going to give an account for my stewardship and the way I treated Jesus' bride. And that affects you profoundly. And there are times that Pastor Matt and I are going to be called on to do hard things that we would rather not do. But obedience to Christ requires it. And you've constantly got to die to your sense of self-preservation in order to do them. The analogy I always like to think of is, is as if you're commanded by God Himself to go ram a stick down a hornet's nest. And you know something? It's not a question of if you're going to be stung. It's just how many times will you be stung before it's over? And yet, loyalty to Christ, loyalty to the one who called you into the ministry requires you to do it. And we can't stand before Jesus someday and say, well, I'm sorry, but we, we regarded the good of our own names more than we did your reputation. We just feared men more than we feared God. He's not going to give us a free pass for that. And so it's saying, remember what we are facing. We are operating as men who must give an account. And so don't make it a grief for us. Let it be a joy to minister to your souls. And brothers and sisters, guard the reputations of your elders and your deacons as well. Be on guard. Um, the Bible commands you to esteem your pastors highly in love for their work's sake. That's the Lord's command, not ours. Men and women will constantly try to undermine the respectability of their pastors to fellow church members, to speak evil of them, 
to talk badly about them. Do you realize such people are putting a stumbling block in your way? Because here's the devil's agenda. The devil wants to discredit the messengers so that you no longer listen to the message. Understand his strategy and don't participate with him because this is the devil's work. We've already got one accuser of the brethren. We don't need 20. Okay? Samuel Pierce was preaching an ordination sermon to a Baptist church who had not had a pastor for five years. God finally raised up that pastor and he gave this exhortation, quote, you will find it necessary not only to guard yourself against harboring any bitter thoughts against your pastor, but also to discourage every appearance of it in others. For one complaining dissatisfied member in a local church, if entertained by the rest, will be like poison in the blood or leaven in the lump, which secretly but effectually insinuates itself until the whole mass is contaminated. Mark them, says the apostle, who cause divisions among you and avoid them, for they gratify their own lusts and do not serve our Lord Jesus Christ. Such people will seem very zealous and pretend they are concerned for the truth, but by their fruits you will know them. Whenever they are discovered, unless they give the sincerest proofs of repentance, put them out of the church as the leper from the camp, lest they defile all who come near them. End of quote. Those are wise words. Again, if we sin against you, what are you supposed to do? Come to us. Come to us as brothers. But be on guard for our reputation, even as we're on guard for yours. Jacob and Jesse are about to be installed as deacons. Brothers, I want to remind you of something. The Scriptures say that those who serve well as deacons obtain for themselves a good standing and great boldness in the faith which is in Christ Jesus. I don't pretend to understand all of what that means, but I know it's God's promise. And if you serve well as deacons, it's a promise that you can count upon that blessing. Uh, Jim Renahan says deacons take care of benevolence, budgets, and buildings. Literates to boot, right? Your skilled managers of the many practical needs of the church so that the eldership can give themselves fully to their calling. So we work well together in a partnership. My admonition to the congregation regarding your deacons is this, highly esteem them as brothers in love for their work's sake, and I would exhort you by adapting the words of Romans 16, verse 2 to their case, receive your deacons in a manner worthy of the saints and assist them in whatever business they have need of you, for they are helpers of many and of ourselves also. Final thing I'll give you, and then it's time to lay hands on these brothers. Above all else, brothers and sisters, pray for your officers. Pray for us. Please pray for us daily. Pray for the Lord to give us wisdom that we do not have, wisdom that is beyond ourselves. As we seek to manage our own households and as we seek to manage the congregation, pray for the Spirit of God to give us illumination in the study, unction in the pulpit, wisdom as we counsel brothers and sisters in the Lord, wisdom as we evangelize others. Pray will be kept from scandalous sin. Pray God will guard our unity. He'll guard our unity. That requires not only doctrinal fidelity, it requires humility. Pride will dis disrupt us, our unity, quicker than anything. Pray for us that God will guard our unity with each other because then that guards the unity of the entire congregation. But whatever else you do, brothers and sisters, pray. Let's pray now. Our Father, we thank you for your goodness and your kindness to us. We thank you for the way the ascended Christ has given us elders and deacons. We ask now that as we lay hands on these brothers, that your spirit would be with us.
uh, in these things. We do commit to you, Lord, our future. Ask that your spirit would work among us as elders and deacons and among our congregation for the glory of God. These things we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.